We're standing on the corner of Wall Street and Main Street. One of the goals of this podcast is to demystify different types of investment products and strategies. One such product that's about as mysterious as it gets, although it's commonplace in the market, just as stocks and bonds, is options. The term option refers to a financial instrument that is based on the value of underlying securities, such as stocks. An options contract offers the buyer the opportunity to buy or sell, depending on the type of contract they hold, the underlying asset. That sounds simple enough, but there's so much more. Options can be used to manage risk, to generate income, and to speculate on big moves in stocks, bonds, and even indexes. I can't think of anyone that has tamed the beast of options quite like John and Pete Najarian, both former NFL football players, so I guess that makes sense. You've seen them on financial media for years, and their success has been well publicized. And in 2016, they co-founded Market Rebellion, a company focused on educating the individual investor. We are fortunate enough to have John, a.k.a. Dr. John, a.k.a. Dr. Jay Najarian, on the program with us today. John, thanks so much for joining us. Doug, it is my pleasure, sir. Thank you for having me on. It's going to be fun. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really excited. The first thing I want to cover is your background in athletics. You played for the Chicago Bears, the Monsters of the Midway. What was that like? Well, um, I was a free agent, Doug, coming out of college, and uh, meaning I was not drafted. Um, and I got the opportunity uh, to go to four different teams. I picked Chicago because at that stage, you get to pick. You know, they make offers, and then you get to pick because you're not drafted. So I picked the team that I thought I had the best chance at making the team because their linebackers – um, you know, stupidly, uh, because of my ego, I'm sure I thought, oh, I'm better than those guys. Um, their linebackers were pretty good, but um, one of them quit before training camp because he was trading on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And he told the Bears, I make more money trading than you're paying me. And they said, BS, we don't think that's true. And he <laughs> said, watch me. And he left and never came back. Um, so that opened up a spot for me, but unfortunately, uh, Mike Singletary, who's now in the hall of fame, um, was also a rookie, my rookie year. And, uh, Mike Singletary obviously became an NFL legend, just like he was a college legend and super gentleman, wonderful guy, great football player and kept me out of the hall of fame done. <laughs> right. Oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah. You know, I, Mike, Mike Singletary, if he wants something, I wouldn't get in his way. But, um, yeah, that's what I kind of thought around the time that you would have been there. They had a pretty good defense in Chicago. In fact, that's always been one of the hallmarks of the Chicago Bears, which I guess gave him that famous nickname. But was there, was there a welcome to the NFL moment that you remember? Um, well, let's see. I remember one time in Arrowhead Stadium um, – I was on the kickoff team. I was on all the special teams because when you're a rookie, you know, those are the jobs you get. <laughs> um, 
and I was out there uh, on the kickoff team and um, it was a good kick. It went nice and high and the guy was returning it and he and I hit head to head like they don't like you to hit these days. Um, and it uh, shattered my helmet. And uh, uh, Mike Singletary, who had broken several helmets in his college career, um, <laughs> patted me on the back after and said, yeah, welcome to the NFL, rookie. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But uh, that... Yeah, that was, I, I saw stars for a sec, but unfortunately, somebody, not me, was offsides. So literally, we had to do it again. Oh, my goodness. So you just no. line straight up again. And the last thing I'm going to do is come off the field when I'm trying to make the team. But I didn't make the tackle on the next one. So I had sure. one <laughs> glorious play and then. <laughs> wow. Did, you, did they get you a new helmet? Oh, yeah. Yeah, literally, <laughs> they threw one in from the uh, sideline. They're not nearly as uh, uh, precise about it as they are now. Um, and those helmets were crap back then, quite frankly. Right. They would break. Uh, the interiors would pop because they had, in many cases, um, bike helmets. They were called, that's the brand. And they right. had inner tubes around the inside, which was great unless an inner tube popped and mine popped. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow, that's incredible. And that's a literal Mike Singletary, welcome to the NFL moment. Yep. Um, your father... The late Dr. John Najarian, John with an H, was an offensive tackle and played in the Rose Bowl, but his legacy is in the field of medicine. Could you tell us a little bit more about the original Dr. John? Sure. Um, my dad was one of three boys born in uh, Oakland, grew up with Clint Eastwood. In fact, Clint Eastwood's mom and my grandmother used to play bridge together. Um, and uh, my dad always, uh, his dad passed away at when my dad was 12 from pneumonia. And literally the same year they developed uh, um, penicillin that would have saved him. Uh, but sadly, you know, it was one of those deals where it, it was in time to save other people, but not my grandfather. So my dad was always fascinated because of that, of medicine. And he wanted to go to the University of California. He got a full scholarship, played football there for three years, graduated. And then his fourth year, he hadn't used up all his eligibility. So he was able to play again. Um, and that was because of, uh, you know, World War II. My dad was coming out of college, I think in 1949, but they'd extended, they let freshmen and other uh, people play. But prior to and after that, you could only play three years. They would not let freshmen play. You could only play that extra fourth year if you uh, um, had an injury or something. But anyway, so my dad played there. He was great. Um, he enjoyed the heck out of it. I met so many wonderful people um, from Cal and from football that he played with. He played semi-pro and then he really ingrained in us a work ethic about uh, how we should play football if we wanted to, and how, you know, uh, it was a fun game, but a very uh, 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 torturous game at the same time. <laughs> For sure. Now, he he went on to be uh, really 
nationally recognized as, as one of the most important uh, doctors in the country and, and taught out of the University of Minnesota, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, he did. Uh, and really had a passion for education. Uh, you've been a stalwart in, in the financial media for over a decade. Uh, do you think that his passion for education is maybe one of the things that drove you to want to contribute to financial journalism and financial media? To a large extent, yes, um, because both my brother Pete and I toyed with the idea of being doctors. Um, I worked in a surgical lab when I was in high school. And then when I went to junior college, I continued to work in a surgical lab doing transplants on dogs primarily um, and uh, really loved it, but didn't love that uh, if, this, if this was a human being I was operating on, I'd have to occasionally go out and tell them that the patient's not going to make it. Um, with a dog, it's sad, but um, you know, you're basically just telling the owner of the dog that their dog isn't going to make it or whatever. Um, but much different with a human being, um, even though I love dogs. Um, but <laughs> Pete went much further down that road, and we both used to go in and hear my dad lecture um, about transplantation. And so I really learned about presenting in front of a crowd and so forth from my dad, from watching him do it many, many, many times. And he always had a little bit of humor, um, some very good detail, and something to inspire people. And we try to do that same thing. Um, it's not just tell them what you're gonna tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. It's not just that. It's more, um, you know, make it interesting, throw in a little humor, and then give them some bit of information that they didn't expect that really might help them understand it more. You know, I, I'll tell you just my experience, um, and, and it was the perfect timing for me, really the dawn of, I'll, I'll use the name, this is a, a non-for-profit endeavor, a CNBC, um, in the early 2000s, and as they really found their place in mainstream media, where really mainstream media, because of uh, the dot-com bubble, the financial crisis, and the 24-hour news cycle, it incorporated financial journalism in a way that it really hadn't before. You know, we used to be relegated to a subsection of the New York Times, uh, or, you know, we had to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, but it all kind of became one and the same. And while that was a useful resource, when Jim Cramer and Mad Money came along, and then when the Fast Money team came along, it really changed the way that financial media was presented to the masses. And it was so incredible to watch that evolution. But while Jim Cramer did a great job, in my opinion, of really bringing it down to, you know, as the name of this podcast would suggest, the intersection between Wall Street and Main Street and, and making the information more digestible, more relatable. When I watched Fast Money, it was moving a little too fast for me. And I felt, you know, these guys kind of, they, they're giving me a trade. They're telling me about, you know, their day in the market. And then the Nigerian brothers came on. And I have to say that for me really was a breakthrough. And it's exactly as you said, it was such a relatable 
and, and clear delivery of the information that it was actionable. You know, when somebody else tells you about the stocks they're trading, what they're buying and selling, maybe it gives you some insight into how they run their business. But there's something in the way that you and Pete deliver that information that allows the, the viewer, the audience to follow along and gives them a reasonable amount of information to make really decisions on their own based on, uh, you know, the information you're disseminating. And I think that was really unique. So if that was your goal, you really nailed it. Um, oh, but, well, you know, you're very kind to say that. Thank you. Doug. And that's just a, from one person's experience. But, you know, so you replaced the guy in, in Chicago that decided to go trade options, but you seemingly followed in his footsteps. Was it your time in Chicago that led you to the Mercantile Exchange and, and the CBOE? Absolutely. Because at that time, Doug, there were like 9,000 traders in Chicago. Um, there were probably 3,000 or so on the floor um, because each exchange, the Merck, so that's the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the Board of Trade, um, obviously both of those being commodity exchanges, and then the Chicago Board Option Exchange. Those are the three primary exchanges. And they each had about a thousand traders. Um, and then you had the upstairs traders. So it was the largest by far trading community on earth. Um, and the most exciting also because so many of us got to trade on the floor. And there's nothing, you know, even with point and click trading now, there's nothing like being on the floor and having a broker ask for a market and screaming quarter half. And everybody's like, what was that? Quarter bid at a half. But you shout it out very quickly because whoever makes that market first, the highest bid and the lowest offer gets the trade. Um, so the broker is always looking for that two-sided market. He, he or she doesn't want to just hear that you are uh, only a seller. Um, you think the market's going down and I'm only a seller. Uh, well, then what happens to the broker who's standing there and he has options to sell or stock to sell? He needs or she needs a bid. So if you don't make a two-sided market, a bid and an offer, they eventually don't even ask you. Um, they don't even look at you when you when they come into the pit. So it was exciting to be down on the floor. The, the opportunity was huge, obviously, at that time, uh, because, as you said, it's challenging perhaps now still to understand options. But you can only imagine how it was when there were nobody, uh, no firms that were teaching people. Uh, it was literally you had to do it by um, you know, taking a shot and seeing if you were uh, good enough or not, um, there was not that support that a good educator can bring to it. Right. And, and uh, I would imagine that your experience and, and Pete's experience in the NFL, and he played with the uh, Buccaneers, uh, but not Tom Brady's Buccaneers. They, were, they had quite a legacy many years ago. And um, let's just say you had a cooler uniform than he did. But, uh, yeah, but Pete, I'm sure. Well, but Pete, Pete played six years. So yeah, yeah. A year with Seattle, then the Vikings two years. Um, he played two years down in uh, Tampa, and then he moved on and he played a little bit, I think, at the L.A. Raiders at the time. 
And then ultimately he got a number one draft pick. He was the pick in the world league of American football. uh, And he was for the Sacramento surge and played in that and won a world title there. But yeah, Pete, Pete is a different cat and a different uh, level of skill than me. He's a much better uh, football player. That's incredible. But he also was shoulder to shoulder with you in Chicago for a while uh, in, in the uh, the options pit, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. He came as soon as his stint in the NFL and the World League was done. He came and stayed with us and he probably learned it faster, Doug, than anybody I've ever seen. Um, wow. He picked up on it really quick. Um, he was a two time academic All-American as well as being an All-American football player. So, you know, those are pretty smart and disciplined people that get those kind of awards. Man, and, you guys uh, have yeah. some some gene pool going on over there. Um, <laughs> here's a question: Investors look at options, you know, sort of as um, as a, something off the a la carte menu that they'd never order. In many cases, individual investors, it's just kind of difficult, I think, for the individual casual investor to really understand it. But um, investors could use options not only as a tool for trading, but as a source of information about particular stocks in the overall market. Could you describe that a little bit? Sure. Well, when we were down on the floor um, in the late 90s, um, it became very clear that some people have a lot better information than even floor traders have. And we knew this because they would come down to the floor with orders just into the final minutes of trading, and they had an uncanny uh, percentage of being right, Doug. (laughs) So we figured, look, if somebody's coming in in the final minutes of trade with big orders, they know something's going to happen after the close or tomorrow. Um, In other words, they have time-critical information, whether or not that's inside information or whether it's gleaned from attending a conference, which obviously not every floor trader can attend every conference going on for EVs or for healthcare or for automobiles or um, uh, multinationals, industrials, whatever. They have a conference every day somewhere in the United States. And if you can't be at that biotech conference, but a hedge fund is there, you can bet their information is going to be better than mine going into those trades. So what we began to do was we began to track those big trades, not just at the end of the day, but throughout the day. And we found that um, especially those big trades where it's somebody buying a thousand options and every option is for a hundred shares of stock. So when they buy a thousand options, that's a hundred thousand share equivalent. That's somebody who doesn't have a hunch. That's somebody who really has a commitment um, and thinks they know where that stock is going. Um, And we want to ride on that same wave they're riding on. And this, uh, we ended up calling that the heat seeker algorithm. And we've used it since 1999. So, you know, we're up on our 23rd year of doing that now. And uh, it's just amazing how accurate Um, those big trades are. And again, I'm not saying they're not insider information. They could be. Um, But I don't know what the information is. The only information I'm getting is from those big trades. And then I just follow them. 
So I'm secondary. I'm seeing it after it is, has happened. But as long as we're still open for trading, I can you know, put on a similar position and get long or get short, meaning I can ride with the bulls or ride with the bears, whichever direction it goes. Right. You know, Carl Icahn once famously said, uh, I'll paraphrase, that he knows many billionaire investors, but no billionaire traders. Trading the markets for the individual investor can be treacherous. It often feels like the deck is stacked against the little guy. You know, what's your thought on trading versus investing and how can options maybe uh, level the playing field a little bit? Um, I think the options do level the playing field a little because most investors don't have tens of millions to invest. Most, most hedge funds have to invest that much um, because if you're managing a billion dollars or $500 million, um, you're not making trades that are worth $100,000. You're making trades for tens of millions of dollars or you can't earn your fees for managing money. That's just the way it works. So um, I think the regular investor um, by using the leverage that options give you, um, you could choose to, if you're a, for instance, somebody who trades a thousand shares at a time, you can still just put on a thousand share position with options. That would be just 10 option contracts. So you're getting the leverage, um, but you're not exposing your capital nearly as much um, to bad things that can happen when your timing's off, when you, uh, um, picked a directional trade, bullish versus bearish and so forth, and it didn't work out because you've defined your risk when you entered the trade by trading options. So I think it it certainly from an information standpoint, I'm never gonna tell you, Doug, that the individual investor has just as much um, knowledge about everything as the pros. I'm not gonna say that, but I am gonna say by following those big traders, you can end up doing exceedingly well because Um, but you can certainly, um, by leveraging the option and following along with their big trades, doing similar directional trades yourself, you can piggyback on the smartest money. And that's what I want to do anyway. I mean, if I knew every single time Warren Buffett made a trade, um, would I want to follow that trade? Yes, I would. But Warren is not a hedge fund. He trades you know, a few times a quarter. He doesn't trade every day, um, but hedge funds do. They trade every day. Uh, and depending what type of hedge fund they are, they take profits quickly. So in other words, they're letting you know entry and exit on these trades. And we just follow along, Doug. Yeah, that's great. And, and you know, I think for passive investors, options have a place. First of all, you can read the VIX, the volatility index every day and kind of gauge the sentiment in the overall market. Like, you know, it's, it's known as the fear gauge. Uh, you can also 
utilize options to manage risk, you know, hedge against your existing investments or strategy. Uh, and even some investors, if, uh, you know, if they want to take this approach of, of uh, using uh, strategies for income generation, could actually utilize options pretty safely and effectively. But, you know, I think that where you guys really make your mark is for individual investors, kind of like an arms dealer, you and Pete, you know, showing up and popping the trunk and giving them different types of tools and resources to go out and fight against the big hedge funds, institutions, robots, algorithms, high-frequency traders, you know, that are that are throughout um, the different types of markets that you'd participate in. Market Rebellion, the, the initiative that, that you and Pete founded, I think about five, six years ago now, uh, is on a mission to empower independent investors to take control of their own financial destiny with trade ideas, education, content, and tools. Now, that comes from your website. But where did the idea come from? Um, well, we uh, in 2004, we sold our uh, trading operations to Citadel, the world's largest hedge fund at that time. And um, we went from having 55, 60 traders to just having me and Pete. So what we did was we began to publish what we were seeing on the heat seeker and then people subscribed to that. Um, then we um, expanded it into education and ended up building a brokerage firm that we sold to E-Trade um, in 2016. Um, once we had sold that, we still had the intellectual property from um, all those uh, trading algorithms and the uh, um, education. So we just said, well, you know, as soon as our non-compete is up, which was only six months or so, we launched Market Rebellion. We actually launched it first as Investitute, and then we changed the name to Market Rebellion. And uh, knock on wood, we've, uh, I think collectively, Pete and I have uh, then had a million different uh, books sold uh, for various strategies that we've written about. And in some cases, at least half a million of those books we gave away in order to build the reputation and the, uh, the base for Market Rebellion. And now we have, you know, grown it to where it is now, which is, you know, something we're really proud of. It's, it really is an incredible machine and, and Market Rebellion is the right name for it, if you want my two cents. You know, the best way to solve a problem, they say, is to break it into pieces and sit and look at the pieces and think about the best way to put them back together. And if I were to take financial media and some of the, the issues that it has now in terms of um, you know, politics or sensationalism. And I was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange as a reporter for a couple of years and at the NASDAQ where I'd run into you every so often. About 10 years ago, uh, I was on upstairs while you guys were doing Fast Money downstairs. And I'll tell you, good news is really hard to report. <laughs> and, and after a couple of good days in a row, there's really nothing to talk about. But you get me like a bad story or a dangerous story and I can really, you know, sink my teeth into that. And, that. and that's kind of the problem with financial journalism as it is 
typically is it kind of leans towards the, the scare tactics or the negativity because that's a little bit easier and more exciting to report than, hey, you know, we had another good day in the markets. If I were to invent financial media today, in my opinion, it would look like market rebellion. I, I think you guys have done an incredible job embracing the attention span of today's audience, social media, and, and creating an ecosystem around a concept that really leads to, I think, dedicated and loyal uh, um, audiences and, and users of your platform. I'll get you out of here on this because I'm curious to hear your thoughts. In the time that you've been on... Oh, you're, first of all, you're way too kind to say all <laughs> that. So I have to say thank you. Um, but My pleasure. I, I tend to agree politics don't really have a place in uh, trading. They have a place in economies, of course. Absolutely. Somebody's throwing off a lot of something and it's going to create inflation and so forth. But um, so thank you for, for that assessment. Yeah, it's, it's part of the story and needs to be factored into investing decisions. And it always has, uh, has had a part. But you know, I think separating from it, because really, what are we trying to do if we're watching the financial media is understand, you know, the playing field, understand the, the opportunities and the risks that are ahead of us so that we can navigate them to some sort of a positive outcome. And the more, you know, we take all of that noise out, you know, the more effective the message in, in, in assisting in that task can become. And I really, I can't get enough of the way that you guys are approaching this. And I'm excited to see this become, you know, a successful revolution or a rebellion, if you will, um, in the financial services industry and in the financial media. So I, I appreciate you and Pete fighting that fight. I do want to mention you're in Puerto Rico today uh, and Puerto Rico had another devastating hurricane. Really, I was there just a few weeks ago. They're still recovering from the one a few years ago that, that knocked them out of power for a long, long time. And my heart goes out to the people there. I, I really thank you for, despite that, being able to join us today. And I think we've, we've had a valuable conversation that our listeners are going to really enjoy. Um, the Wall and Main podcast is going to make a donation to the American Red Cross uh, in the name of this episode as a thank you for you being generous with your time and effort. But where can our listeners learn more about Market Rebellion and about what you guys are doing there? Well, first of all, um, I thank you for uh, doing that with uh, the Red American Red Cross. I think that is probably one of the best places to go for donations for the folks that are truly uh, lifelong uh, residents and impacted in a horrible way by this very large storm. Um, but as far as going to uh, marketrebellion.com, that's the best. Just go to marketrebellion.com forward slash get started, and they can see all about the educational as well as subscription um, products that we've got. Just marketrebellion.com forward slash get started. I love it. And, and also follow Pete and John and Jerry and wherever you can. It's it's amazing. Every time I open up uh, my Twitter or my LinkedIn, I get these short 
completely free of charge rundowns on the market in a, in a bite-sized consumable way that is so detailed and so actionable, it, it's really kind of become a part of my daily information diet <laughs> for, for the market. So I appreciate all the work you're doing there. And, and I, you know, really a heartfelt thank you for all the work you've done in financial media over, over the years. It's really been a big help to individual investors you know, fighting the good fight in this uh, war against the machines. But um, Dr. John Najarian with Market Rebellion, uh, really thank you so much for your time and joining us on the Wall and Main podcast today. Thank you so much, Doug. Thank you, team, for putting this together. I hope we do it again. <laughs>